Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And on April 20th, 2021, a jury returned a guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin on three separate felony wrongful death charges, second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. The trial of this case consumed 10 days of testimony and the jury's verdict was returned after 10 hours of deliberation. At this time, sentencing is scheduled for July. The facts presented in the Chauvin prosecution were graphic and ably presented through a heavy use of videotapes, eyewitness and expert testimonies. On both sides of the case, the parties were strong and passionate in the presentation of evidence for their clients. At the end of the day, the jury concluded that the evidence of guilt was overwhelming and supported its determinations. Since the return of the Chauvin verdict, there have already been police killings in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, Columbus, Ohio, Chicago, Illinois, and now in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Historically, it is rare that a police officer has been convicted in the killing of an African-American or a person of color. There was the conviction in the Botham Jean case in Dallas, Texas in 2018. In the case of Damon Grimes in Michigan in 2017, in the uh, prosecution for the death of, of Laquan McDonald in Chicago in 2014, and in North Charleston, South Carolina, in the death of Walter Scott in 1950, and the death of Barry Lawson that occurred in Seattle, Washington in 1938. Um, tonight, we are going to discuss the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin's trial, the evidence, the verdict, and the impact and consequences on similar trials in the future. Joining us for this discussion are Professor Tamika Moses, a criminal law specialist and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina, and our constitutional law expert, Professor Donald Corbett. So thank both of you for uh, joining with us uh, this evening. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, each of you were able to view portions of this uh, trial and uh, afterwards you have had an opportunity 
to reflect on the impact of this prosecution on uh, police misconduct in this country. So my first question to each of you, which is kind of general in nature, what, what is your impression of the trial and the uh, jury verdict? And we're going to come back and get into some details, but just kind of an overview of uh, your uh, feelings about uh, this trial and, and, and the jury's verdict that uh, was rendered. So why don't we start with uh, Professor Corbett. Sure, or thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I think my immediate feelings were basically a cross between gratitude and relief. Uh, I think that in watching the verdict, you know, I guess for me, it spelled out that I still have, and I think this is true of many of us, I still have kind of PTSD in the thought that despite the tape and despite the testimony from the police officers and pathology reports, you know, you still weren't sure until you actually heard them announce the verdict. So, so for me, it was really just one, again, being grateful for the verdict and, and being relieved that the verdict was what it was. And then, you know, you immediately pivot to, okay, where are we now? Are we in a point where this is kind of an inflection point and will this serve as a momentum for more legislative efforts to kind of co-sign on the idea that policing needs to be revamped and overhauled um, in our communities or whether we revert back to you know, the road that we've been on time and time again. So I think those were my immediate thoughts and feelings. And, and I guess, you know, given some of the things that you've mentioned since uh, the George Floyd killing, we obviously still have a long way to go. Professor Moses. Yeah, the, the phrase that comes to mind is that uh, once the verdict was in, I was, I became cautiously optimistic. Um, like Professor Corbett said, definitely a sense of relief. Um, there were some times when I doubted whether or not the verdict would come back the way I thought it should based on the evidence. But I've always said, you know, if the jury followed the instructions that they'd have no problem finding the defendant, Mr. Chauvin, guilty on all counts. I say cautiously optimistic because when you think about the George Floyd case, right, this was an incredibly unique set of circumstances. Often when you see a police killing and involves some kind of firearm, it's fairly quick. Here you had this long drawn out process of this man being killed for the world to see um, in front of all these cameras, in front of all these bystanders. And so I wonder, or I question whether or not it will be enough to make change, right? Because again, what it says is we may have to have something so unique <laughs> that a jury has to come back and return a verdict of guilty. Um, whereas the answer should be passing legislation that addresses this issue, addressing qualified immunity, and addressing the policies that underlie a lot of these um, police-related shootings. So um, I'm happy about the verdict, but again, I'm cautiously optimistic. Professor Dawson, we, we might as well get you in on this, this as well, uh, because I know that you were following it, and uh, even though you are co-host, uh, you can be victimized as well. And uh, so how, how, how did you see this, uh, this case unfolding? Well, um, thanks, Irv. Um, and 
you know, you use the, the term victimized. And I will say that watching the trial, um, hearing the testimony, seeing the testimony, it was traumatic. Uh, it was traumatic for me as, um, you know, an African-American woman. Um, and I can't imagine how traumatic it was for Mr. Floyd's family and other members of our community who have had firsthand dealing with police abuse. Uh, and every time something happens, it's, you know, we're all kind of re-traumatized. Uh, and it, it was difficult and challenging to, to watch and follow because, you know, we feel like we are constantly in this space. And even, you know, while we were uh, grateful and relieved and cautiously optimistic when the jury verdict came down, we're still having to deal with uh, Black people being killed at the hands of police in situations where it doesn't appear as though that's necessary. So um, I'll, I'll share this real quick. Um, my constitutional law class, I teach constitutional law um, as well as uh, uh, Professor Corbett. And I know he has these conversations with his students as well. Uh, but there have been so many times throughout this year and even in past years where we've had to pause our kind of, you know, uh, anticipated discussion to talk about what's going on in the world and, and constitutional law and law school kind of generally is a good place to have those discussions. And so it was interesting getting my students' perspective, which really mirrored mine, which and mirrored, you know, exactly what Professor Corbin and Professor Moses have shared, which is one, not quite sure that the verdict would be what, what we thought it should be. Uh, that relief, that gratitude, that questioning whether this is going to be the moment in time when things change. Because unfortunately, we've been at this place before. We've had video before. We've had wrongful killings. We've had police abuses. That what happened to George Floyd was not unique in the sense of uh, an individual being abused, criminally abused, murdered by police. What was different was this extended time period, um, as Professor Moses mentioned. And so just so many feelings and emotions that, um, that I know that I'm feeling, that uh, many in our community are feeling. And yeah, so those are just kind of my general thoughts at this point. And Irv, you're going to have to, I'm going to flip the, the script and, and ask you to share your general impressions when the jury verdict was read. Uh, I agree with everyone and everything that's uh, been said. Uh, it was one of uh, relief. Uh, and then I was concerned about why I was relieved, uh, because in no other case, uh, does the uh, return of a jury verdict uh, cause me uh, relief? Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, that, that I wondered about uh, from the outset, uh, given the highly publicized nature of, uh, of this trial, we ended up with a jury that was atypical of Minnesota. We had five uh, African-Americans two mixed race individuals, six women on the, uh, on the jury. 
what is your feeling about this jury composition? And uh, in light of the high level of publicity which um, preceded the trial, the uh, impact of that on the verdict, number one, and two, the possibility of an appeal. So we can start with uh, Professor Moses, I guess, if, you, if you're ready, and then go to uh, Professor Corbett. Sure. So the diversity of the panel, of course, was something that was extremely interesting um, for this trial. Like you said, given the extreme publicity surrounding it, as well as the fact that we are talking about Minnesota, um, I found it to be very interesting. Um, I also found it to be interesting that they were able to bring this group together, given the kind of questions they were asking during voir dire, right? It almost seemed like race was on trial to a certain extent with the type of questions they were asking. You know, what are your thoughts on Black Lives Matter? What are your thoughts on the police? Some of those are questions we generally ask, particularly what your position is on policing, um, but they kind of dug a little deeper. Um, and so I thought it was interesting they were able to get the group that they did given the questions that they were asking. Um, I, I do believe when it comes to appeal, um, this is gonna be a hot issue because the defense throughout the trial during voir dire before the trial even got started, they were looking for a different venue. Um, and I think at the end of the day, Judge Cahill got it correct um, because again, this is something that was seen across the world. Um, this was something that brought everyone, all communities together um, to discuss, to de de debate, to de determine whether or not laws needed to change when this happened back in May of 2020. And so I think the venue was appropriate. Um, I, I do believe that this mixture did have an impact on the ultimate verdict um, because people are walking into that jury deliberation room with their own experiences. Um, if the panel only consisted of white males, uh, the conversation may have been completely different, not to say that they wouldn't reach the same verdict, but there are certain experiences they may not have had with police that people of mixed race or of African-American descent could discuss during those deliberations. And so I do think it played a role, but I think it played a, a positive role uh, in this particular verdict in this trial. Yeah, I, I can't add anything think significant to that. I wholeheartedly agree. I felt like I think the diversity of the jury in some ways added to the strength of the, the of the facts that were that were placed in front of the court and hopefully added to legitimacy of, of the verdict in the end. And and similar to jury composition like Professor Moses referenced, I thought the venue was really important because I think that and, and I had to try to be semi-objective in watching uh, the defense counsel make his points. But I think that some of those points uh, were really out of sync with the evidence, given the, the strength of the videos and the prosecution's, I thought, continual efforts to tell the jury, you know, you can trust what you see here. This is exactly what it looks like. But I think if you play that in, in an all-white suburb where, where I think some of those communities have really different relationships with the police, then I think maybe those points resonate stronger. So I think that the combination of the diversity of the jury in, in, in terms of race and the location of the trial, I thought, were, were really, really impactful in terms of getting 
uh, to that overall verdict. Well, you know, just kind of moving forward on, on this jury jury issue, uh, after the jury had been selected and the uh, decision was made to uh, uh, not sequester them for trial, uh, there was the announcement of a $27 million settlement uh, that had been reached by the uh, city of uh, Minneapolis and the, uh, the uh, Floyd family. And uh, we're going to take a break, but I want you to just kind of give some thought to that uh, so that when we come back, we talk about uh, the impact of that fact, that disclosure on uh, what happened during the uh, trial. But for our audience, we're going to take our break. Right now, we are talking about the uh, Derek Chauvin, George Floyd trial verdict and consequences of that. We have two outstanding guests. Uh, Professor Tamika Moses and uh, Professor Don Corbett, uh, both at the uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law, and uh, they are providing us with uh, their expertise on this issue. So stay with us and we'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Inequities in the criminal justice system have been well-documented. The causes of disparities in the criminal justice system are overwhelmingly blamed on overt racism and systemic institutional racism. However, little focus is placed on the role that implicit bias plays in furthering those disparities. Implicit biases are associations made by individuals towards people in the unconscious state of mind. Research has shown that people hold implicit biases even in the absence of reasonable belief, simply by paying attention to the social world around them. As with all types of bias, implicit bias can distort one's perception and subsequent treatment, either in favor of or against a given person or group. As a result, these biases manifest in stop and frisk, over-policing of black and brown communities, the bail system, jury selection, fact-finding related to discriminatory practices, sentencing, and every other aspect of the justice system. Discussions of implicit bias tend to focus on race. However, implicit bias can be expressed in relation to non-racial factors, including gender, age, religion, or sexual orientation. Public confidence in the criminal justice system is a cornerstone of the rule of law and a facilitator of public safety. Therefore, reducing the influence of implicit biases is vitally important to the prevention of the harmful effects of those biases. Virtual justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue our conversation uh, regarding the uh, Derek, uh, Derek Chauvin, George Floyd uh, trial summary and consequences of that. Uh, when we took our break, uh, we were talking with uh, Professor Tamika Moses and uh, Professor Don Corbett, uh, both from the uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law about uh, this trial and uh, their uh, impressions uh, and summaries of uh, what occurred. And then when we took our break, uh, the question posed 
uh, for us coming back was the impact of the announcement of the $27 million settlement that uh, the Floyd family had reached with uh, the uh, city of, uh, of Minneapolis. And it's uh, the impact of that on the uh, jury deliberation and again, uh, on uh, an appeal issue that might arise. So uh, Professor Corbett, you wanna start us off uh, with your summary or your analysis of that? Yeah, sure. Now I've already mentioned that I was already kind of worried about all of this before it started. And then when I heard news of the potential settlement, I got even more worried because I felt like the timing of it all, even though I didn't, I understood it. Uh, but if I remember correctly, the, the city actually called a news conference to announce the settlement and, and to do so in the middle of the, of the, um, of the hearing, I was worried that somehow or another, because you can go one of two ways, right? Like just emotionally, if you're on the jury, you're not sequestered and you hear about this, then you're worried about, okay, well, if the family's getting this much money, then maybe we can go a little bit lighter on, on the punishment for the police officer, uh, which again, I think it, it mattered a lot more that it was a diverse jury as opposed to an all white jury, because I think maybe that resonates with, with uh, some communities as opposed to others. Uh, I was worried about, you know, appeal. I was worried about an argument on appeal that there was going to be a, that this uh, was kind of prejudicial and, and had the ability to taint the jury pool. It just, you know, all kinds of things rushed through my head. Fortunately, none of those things appear to have, have, uh, have made a huge difference in the overall verdict. But, but yeah, absolutely, I was surprised. I don't think the city did it maliciously, but I, I did think it was a little bit short-sighted in terms of the importance of, of every aspect of that criminal trial. Because Moses? I agree with what Professor Corbett had to say. Um, I definitely got a sense of worry, and I do agree that it cuts both ways, right? On the one end, you'll have the group of people who say, well, you know, the, the family got their money. What, you know, there's no need to find this guy guilty. And on the other hand, it's like, well, if the city paid them millions of dollars, clearly he's guilty, right? And so people will fall in one or two buckets. Um, at the end of the day, though, I think the court made the right decision in going back and questioning everyone all of the jurors about um, the settlement and if whether or not it would have an impact on their ability to remain impartial throughout the duration of the trial. And um, if I remember correctly, or there was maybe one um, female, I don't remember what her race was, who did indicate that it would impact her ability to remain impartial. And so she was excused, but everyone else um, assured the court that they would be able to complete or fulfill their duties as a juror in this trial notwithstanding the settlement announcement. So um, I guess that's something that remains to be seen when it comes to the appeal. But like Professor Corbett said, it doesn't seem like it impacted the panel, particularly because the majority of them did indicate on the record that it would not impact their ability to remain impartial. So we want to get your thoughts on the strategy, the, the prosecution strategy, the prosecution team, and the way that the state organized its its case. Can you share your thoughts about how 
I mean, clearly the prosecution was effective because we had a conviction on all three counts. As you were observing the trial, what were your impressions on the strengths of the the prosecution's case beyond just the video and how it was organized? Um, and, And can you reflect on why you think it was, or whether you thought it was an effective strategy, uh, and and what made it so powerful? And Professor Moses, let's start with you. Yeah, so I thought the prosecution did a stellar job um, with this trial. I think um, sometimes with high-profile cases, it's easy to, especially in this case, let's take a step back. Um, In this case, there is so much video (laughs) of this particular incident that the prosecution literally could have walked in there dumped all the videos on the jury and sat down, right? But what they did was they organized all of this testimony in a way that the jury could understand, um, that, that in a way that they could digest it in a way that was kind of not really chronological, but more so in buckets, right? So stage one of the trial was the bystanders. Everyone who was on the street came in. Then stage two would have been the police officers um, who would discuss why this was not a reasonable use of force, why it was unreasonable, why it was not Uh, a policy that, you know, someone used this neck restraint on someone that's being um, arrested. And then the final leg, of course, was the medical um, testimony, which Jerry Blackwell did extremely well. Um, So first, just starting with the bystanders, I think the prosecution did a great job of just bringing everyone in sort of like during the time that they actually started to observe the incident. Um, And then, of course, they brought in their corresponding videos to discuss what they were able to observe and see. And why I thought this was effective, right, is because one of the defenses was, here is this crowd that's intimidating my client. He was so confused and and scared. He he couldn't pay attention to Mr. Floyd, who was passing away right under his knee, right? But when you see them take the stand, they're breaking down. They're crying. They um, express this remorse for not having done more. Um, in some instances, you have minors coming on the stand, right? So the prosecution come up at the end and say, is this the mob that you were speaking of, speaking of you know, that um, intimidated your client, right? Um, and so I thought that that was extremely effective. Um, that was probably the most traumatizing part of the trial, of course, because that is all of the video. And I hadn't actually watched the video until this trial. Um, and so seeing it over and over and over again uh, was a lot, but I think it was effective. Um, And when it comes to the police officer portion of the prosecution's case, um, there were instances where it was getting a bit cumulative because you have the officers coming in saying over and over again that this was unreasonable, this is not our policy. But again, they left no stone unturned. I thought it was important for officers in that department to come in and state specifically that this is not our policy and this is unreasonable use of force. Um, And of course, having the chief of police come in to state the same was extremely impactful. And then finally, the medical experts. Um, I think as most attorneys know, trial attorneys know, um, medical expert testimony is one of the most difficult areas of testimony that you can provide to a jury. Um, The stuff is often dry, it's convoluted, um, people's eyes glaze over when you start talking to your expert. But Jerry Blackwell um, just has this style that's very conversational that broke down all of the terms um, and just made it very easy for the jury to understand. Of course, his star was Dr. Tobin, the pulmonologist who was very descriptive um, and very um, just step-by-step and taking the jury through everything. And he did a great job with that. 
But again, the prosecution's approach was to go through each of those stages, laying out their case, leaving no stone unturned, batting down all defenses, and essentially leaving the, the jury with very little diet, doubt, right? So <laughs> I think their approach was forget beyond a reasonable doubt. We're going for beyond all doubt. And I think they did an outstanding job. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for that. Um, Professor Corbett, so Professor Moses um, did a really good job of breaking down the organization of the state's case. And in talking about that, she mentioned uh, the witnesses. As you share your thoughts about the state's presentation of their case in chief, can you talk about the, um, the eyewitnesses in particular and the, the value of the use of video? Sure. So, so one of the things about video, and, and I'm I'm going to go back to, I guess it was the King verdict, the Rodney King verdict back in 1990. I guess it was 1992, 1993. Uh, and and again, like many people, the belief was okay. There's a video of these officers who were uh, beating this gentleman nearly to death. How could you have anything but a conviction here? And I think what ended up happening was one, you had a very different jury pool, you had a very different time, you had a very different venue for the trial, right? So that was one thing. And then it almost felt like the video was played so much that the jury got numb to it. And it just didn't mean as much to them. So whenever you have video evidence, I think you have to be careful that you don't overplay it. So the thing that I really appreciated about what they did, and, and obviously Professor Moses has it exactly right, is that they just kind of, they built this house you know, and they had like different floors to the house. They started with the bystanders. And I thought they were incredibly effective at portraying the humanity of the situation, not just of this man having the life choked out of him, but the helplessness that they felt standing by while they're being obstructed by officers to keep them from assisting him and having to watch him die. I thought that was, that was really effective at humanizing him as a person. Uh, then you had, he went to the police officers uh, and that was another rarity with this case that, that wasn't present in the King case and many, many other police misconduct cases in that you had officers who person by person by person all said, this is not how this is supposed to be done. This is not the way our policies and our procedures have trained us. And then, of course, it, they capped it all off with the, with the medical testimony. So I thought it was a really effective way of both humanizing him and reminding people that this is a person who has died and is no longer with us. And combining that with the technical testimony that you needed to make the legal standards or to meet the legal standard for conviction. And, and as Professor Moses said, they really left the jury with no alternative but to find uh, that he was good. And I could say one more thing if you don't mind. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong or because I'm, I might be wrong, I'm, I'm frequently wrong. <laughs> but it seemed to me that the other thing that I wanted to make, make uh, a point about was the state AG taking control of the prosecution at the beginning. It seemed to me that when this first happened, that the, the local authorities were kind of going left. And I wasn't sure, I was like, oh no, what are they doing? You know, and, and I try very hard not to be a Monday morning quarterback when I'm watching this unfold because I know there's a lot of moving parts, but it just seemed like the way the prosecution was going on a local level, it looked like, oh, this is, this is gonna be messy. But then I believe his name is Keith Ellison stepped in and uh, he took control of, of the prosecution. He appointed, obviously, a team of incredibly competent and gifted lawyers, and, and they ended up getting the result that the Floyd family 
uh, and the rest of us deserve. And I think that was very, very critical uh, to the case that uh, Minnesota had a statute which allowed the uh, attorney general to step in and take over the uh, prosecution of, uh, of a case like this, unlike North Carolina, uh, which is gonna be very uh, important going forward in the, uh, in the Brown case down in Elizabeth City, uh, because in North Carolina under our statutes, uh, in order for the attorney general to get involved in the case, they have to have a specific request from the district attorney in the jurisdiction in which the uh, offense uh, occurred. And uh, obviously there is some concern uh, here about that, but I, I think that was a crit critical point uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Minnesota. And I think it helped uh, to create a level of confidence among many people that, uh, that justice might be served in that case. You talked about the uh, the experts and the pulmonologists and his clarity in understanding. And, and Mika, you you um, uh, made the point about how clear he was. I remember looking at his uh, testimony and him actually doing a demonstration where he was directing people to uh, feel your neck and to look at or feel certain portions of that. And I'm, I'm sitting here in, uh, in North Carolina observing that. And I found myself doing exactly what it was that he was doing and then comments made by other folks that the jurors were doing it. And I said, wow, that's a killer right there. That is a killer demonstration as to the credibility of his uh, testimony. So can, can the two of you kind of speak to, you know, your impressions of that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He was, it was so effective, right, that it drew an objection, right? The defense was offended that he had people touching themselves to figure out, you know, what he was discussing. And the judge said, uh, just for the record, you don't have to engage in this, but if you'd like to, by all means, you know, and like you said, the reporters reported that the jurors were following along. I think the thing about Dr. Tobin is he is a teacher at heart. It's what he does. And I believe he stated that this was the first time um, that he had testified in a criminal proceeding, which I think helped him, right? Because sometimes experts, no offense, um, get into this routine, right? That these are my qualifications. This is typically what I say before I get to your particular case. And it's very like robotic uh, to a certain extent. But Dr. Tubin was very engaging. You know, he's like drawing you into the screen. I just sat there the entire time staring right at the man, like you said, following along and digesting every single thing that he said. But secondly, um, beyond that, beyond telling the jurors where to touch and where to search, uh, the fact that he was so descriptive, you know, what do the, the, the abrasions on his knuckles mean? Well, let's go back to the video. You could see, you know, this is him searching for oxygen at this point, right? I think all of that is very effective, again, because it brings life to the video, but also it just shows the jury um, what each of the movement, movements on that video mean as it relates to when George Floyd died on that particular day. So. I think Dr. Tubin is going to be very busy <laughs> from this point forward, uh, but he was an outstanding witness. Yeah, I, I think his field going up considerably after this because it's usually with 
you know, one of the big challenges with ex with any expert testimony, especially medical expert testimony, between the expert's knowledge base and the jury, because it's so easy. They, it's not like they, again, no disrespect. We, we often say no disrespect. We're getting ready to disrespect somebody. I don't mean it like this, but, but, but sometimes, you know, the, the expert can be so into the technicalities of what's going on and this autopsy report or, the, you know, whatever the case is, that they just talk completely over or through the audience. And, and I thought that, that his testimony and the way that he portrayed it was so relatable and, and so easy to understand. And I thought, you know, fit right in with the common sense approach that the prosecution took that in the midst of all these technicalities, you can believe what you're seeing. And this man was choked to death on the street by this police officer. And let me show you how it happened. And then to have him actually say, now put your hand up here and then you can feel what I'm, you know, it just, I thought it brought it all home incredibly, incredibly well. It was very, very effective. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have been talking this hour about the George Floyd murder trial verdict and consequences. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor Tamika Moses, who is a criminal law specialist and former assistant United States attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina and a frequent guest, Professor Donald Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert. We're going to have to take a quick break and step away from this riveting discussion, but we hope you stay with us. We will be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Don Corbett, a constitutional law professor and expert here at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and Professor Tamika Moses, who is also a professor here at the law school and who is a criminal law specialist and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina. And we've been talking about the Derek Chauvin, George Floyd murder trial verdict and consequences this hour. Now, the last segment, uh, both of you did a, a great job in, in sharing your thoughts and insights into the structure of the prosecution's case, the, the uh, strength of the witnesses, the use of the videotapes, 
And, and as you were talking, I was reflecting on some of the comments that you all made during the first segment when you were sharing your initial impressions and uh, the, the sense of relief at the, at the verdict, um, even though there was all of this evidence. And as you were talking, I couldn't help but think about the perfect storm that existed here, right? Uh, as Professor Moses mentioned, we had this extended video um, we had a video in the first place. Uh, we had this diverse jury. Um, we had these powerful witnesses. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, one, would we have even had this verdict or, or even maybe the, the prosecution with these specific charges had it not been for the video? If everything else was the same without the video, would we have had that? Um, verdict. And, and this goes to the, the points that both of you all emphasized, which is, did it require all of this? Was it a perfect storm that led to this result? And what does that mean going forward? Are we going to have to have all of these things in place for folks to be held accountable for their abuses? Uh, Professor Corbett, let's start with you. Yeah, that's 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 like the money question right i mean it's i don't want to i don't want to be flippant and but i'm going to use a term that i'll say like straight out of central casting because everything that you really needed to have a successful prosecution you had here and even in spite of all of that you still at least i still had some concern that that uh that he might walk and i think that part of that is because and i'm, I'm and if I start to ramble, just cut my mic off because I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say, but I'm going to try to say it. I, I think that you still have a decent sized faction of people in our country who see incidents like George Floyd and, and Anthony Brown, and they say to themselves, you know, that's exactly how my tax dollars are supposed to work. Police are supposed to protect me from, from those people over there. They're just doing their job. And, and I think one of the things that I hate to use his name, but I'll use it, uh, Donald Trump did in his time at office was I think he helped beify law enforcement in some ways as keepers of, of this whole notion of what the true American value is. And they're here to do and they have to do whatever's necessary to protect you. So I think that because that exists, it gives law enforcement a lot of times the benefit of the doubt in these situations. And, and without video evidence, without bystander evidence that's that convincing, then I think that benefit of the doubt automatically kind of goes over to law enforcement who do, you know, in many instances have very dangerous jobs. And but what happens is, is that subject to abuse. And when you have someone like Chauvin who had multiple, multiple, multiple uh, disciplinary uh, incidents in his file, but he's yet still stay able to stay on the job, then it does give your bad apple to the extent those exist uh, more temerity to do the kind of things that they do. And, and the thing I'll never forget about any of this is just the, the, the look on his face of, of callousness and indifference as he is choking the life out of this man. And, and I think that that comes from lots of different places. And, and I think those places are kind of endemic to the way policing works in the United States and black communities and brown communities. So, so, you know, I don't know what I just said. I think what I will settle with is that, you know, I think part of the reason we have a long way to go is because 
I just don't think that people across the board uh, see these kind of incidents as problematic. And as long as that's the case, then reform is always going to be complicated. Professor Moses? Um, so I, I'll, I'll say this. I think that, uh, unfortunately, this is what is required. Um, what we saw here, like you said, was the perfect storm. Um, you had the video evidence. You had everything you needed for this particular prosecution. Um, and I know some people would like to take that and say, okay, great. Now we can go hold everyone else accountable. Um, I don't think this trial does that. Um, what I think this trial does and what I think the video did back in May of 2020 is, again, engage the community into this conversation regarding policing. Um, we need to get to the underlying policies that govern these law enforcement agencies, and we need to find a way to amend them or uh, change them in a way that helps the community. Um, so what do I mean by that? Um, I think during this trial, or I guess, was it the date of the verdict? The young lady in Ohio was shot um, under the policy. I'm sure that officer will be cleared, right? Because the young lady, um, according to the video, had a knife in her hand and she's seen almost going to attack someone else. Across all police agencies, you'll find something in the policy, policy that says you can use deadly force if someone is um, intending or about to harm another person. Um, and so in that situation, should there be a policy that allows the officer to take alternate measures instead of going straight to deadly force? I mean, should there be some kind of conversation about how um, police officers should navigate those particular situations? Um, I think there should be some change, right? Because as we know, um, although this is the policy, um, the way it is applied in Black communities differ from the way that it is applied in other communities. Had that been some other community, um, perhaps that young lady may not have been shot. But again, what I think this trial does is it just allows us to have that conversation, to really find a way um, to amend these policies um, in a way that'll basically help um, the communities that are being served by these um, police officers. Um, and I think also Professor Corbett mentioned something uh, regarding, you know, uh, some agencies having these quote unquote bad apples. Um, and I think that part of the prosecution's strategy in closing in particular was speaking to jurors who may have had some concerns about policing being on trial. Um, I do know that that is a concern for many people. Like we don't want to have all police get this bad rap or get this bad name. We wanna make sure that we are just going after those who are abusing their positions of power. Um, but I think that what we should do at the end of the day is make sure that everyone, be it bad or good, <laughs> is applying the policy in a way that applies equally across each community. Well, you know, you, you talk about this uh, perfect storm of, uh, of evidence that uh, appeared on the um, uh, prosecution side and the uh, location of this uh, trial and this particular jury. Uh, there was a hint though, that the defense's argument and evidence, which focused on describing the reasonable police officer under these circumstances and how the reasonable police officer faced with these same challenges uh, would have uh, acted uh, that may have resulted in the death of, uh, of George uh, Floyd, would that narrative resonate differently in another community with another 
uh, jury composition that would probably probably more uh, resemble the old uh, what we call the 10-2 uh, jury composition uh, that uh, you find in uh, most uh, most jurisdictions. So, uh, and I'm speaking now to the effectiveness of the defense or defense evidence and the defense's argument and how it would have played out differently somewhere else. I think that's 100% right. And I think, and, and, and that's why the video was so important because without the video, then you're left to each side's descriptions of what happened. And if you then have an officer saying, well, this is what I was faced with and this is how I reacted. Uh, and then you don't have video evidence showing to the contrary, then maybe you have more police officers or fewer police officers who are willing to say so flagrantly, this is a flagrant violation of what we, what we teach and how we want to practice. And then it becomes, you know, just the, the, the credibility uh, decision for the jury. And again, based on the makeup of the jury and how they see policing in their own respective communities, they very well could have come down on the side of, of, uh, of a police officer using excessive force as a reasonable and necessary tactic given the circumstances. Absolutely. The only thing I would add to that is I think the defense should have considered their venue, right? Um, they should have considered the fact that the venue had not changed. Um, and after hearing the state's case and hearing all those officers coming in and then presenting your own expert and having the prosecution turn the, you know, your expert into their own witness, uh, you should have pivoted. Um, I've always said I think the defense should have at least conceded uh, use of force and perhaps just gone solely um, with cause of death. Because one, you lose credibility when you continue on this line of defense in this audience. And so, yes, I do believe had this been in a different location, maybe we'd have a different story. But given the location that they were in, given the fact that the prosecution had all these officers come in and then kind of slammed and dismissed the defense expert, right? I think the defense should have conceded that point and moved on to something else. Well, what, what impact do you uh, see this having in uh, future trials? And we have a few that uh, being uh, examined and investigated uh, at this moment. Uh, does the uh, George uh, Floyd, Derek Chauvin uh, trial create a high bar uh, that's going to uh, forestall uh, further prosecutions or does the uh, success uh, it, there in uh, Minneapolis uh, give courage to prosecutors to move forward? Uh, in uh, prosecuting these cases in other jurisdictions. Either one of you can start us off. So um, the, the first thing I'll say is I think what this trial does is it lets prosecutors know that if you're gonna charge this, um, make sure that you're ready to try it to the fullest extent, right? I think that you should be prepared to not take anything for granted um, and that you should fully investigate your case uh, at the charging phase so that when this does go to trial, you're ready to put on the best case possible. I don't think that it sets an unattainable standard um, per se. I just think that it shows um, how you can put a case together, um, what elements you might need should they be present in your particular case, and essentially what you can do to ensure that you 
um, at least present the strongest case possible. Of course, you can't say do what you can to get a conviction because you never know what a jury is going to do, particularly you know, based on your jurisdiction and your set of facts in your particular case. But get your experts lined up, right? Um, if there's some officers um, that you can speak to within the agency who know about this particular officer in your case, um, find out all you can about whether or not they were adhering to policy, whether or not they had done something in the past that you need to know about, and just make sure that you're prepared to try to get all of these pieces um, together so that, again, you could put forth the best case possible. But I don't think it's unattainable. I think it can be done again. I also think it can be done again, but I also, but in, I have to acknowledge that some of that is going to depend on, I'm going to use a phrase that doesn't make any sense, but the, the want to of the district attorney's office, like how badly do you want to create this a successful prosecution out of these kinds of circumstances? And, and you've got layers there, right? Because it could be, you know, we've talked about the Andrew Brown shooting down Elizabeth City. Well, how politically popular is a prosecution going to be down there? You know, how will a prosecution impact the relationship between the district attorney's office and law enforcement down there? Those are the kinds of things that I think are continually going to be issues in these kinds of cases. So if the want to is there and the expertise is there, then I think uh, the Floyd case gives you or the Chauvin case gives you a, a blueprint for how you can go about doing that. But if you don't have the want to from the beginning or you don't feel like it's politically sustainable to, to create a kind of prosecution here that might result in a conviction of a law enforcement official, then I think we run back to the same problems we've seen over and over and over again in these kinds of cases. And, you know, Professor Corbett, your, your comment makes me, I, I think it underscores the importance of bystander video, right? The video that we have in the George Floyd murder, it was a bystander. Um, and we think about, you know, the, the use of video, the benefit of having video, and if the video is in control, in the control of the state or in the control of law enforcement, it really does minimize potentially the impact that that video will have. Um, Professor Moses, you were talking about the engagement of the community and how this case has allowed the community to become even more involved. Can both of you, in the few minutes that we have left, share your thoughts with um, suggestions that you would offer to community members who are listening to this broadcast and thinking about what they can do to be, to be more engaged? I, uh, the thing that comes to mind immediately for me is, you know, that I think we all are saying the same thing in the sense that our efforts cannot stop here with one successful conviction. And the thing that comes to mind, like I said, immediately for me is lobbying your uh, legislators at the federal level to create momentum to pass the George Floyd. Uh, oh man, I'm going to mess the name up. The George Floyd and P Policing Act or Justice. I cannot get, I never get the name right, but there's basically a federal law uh, that has been passed by the House that is uh, waiting to be taken up by the Senate that makes a number of the changes that might help with uh, the policing, uh, with policing across the country. It expands the Justice Department's investigative powers. It creates more in the way of oversight legislation, uh, which similar to a way that was used by the Voting Rights Act successfully for so long. Uh, it creates, an, I think, a national database for police misconduct, so you don't have officers just bouncing from bad from location to location to location. 
So I think at the, at the top of my head, it would be to make sure that we get people engaged in lobbying for the passage of that act on a federal level. And then you might start to see more in the way of infrastructure changes in terms of how these situations unfold in the legal system if they uh, continue to happen. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is at the local level, uh, when you hear about the local DA races and things like that, get involved, pay attention, uh, because as you can see in this particular case and others, uh, that matters. Um, who your AG is, who your DA is matters. If you think about uh, Baltimore, for example, Marilyn Mosby up there decided to stop charging low-level um, drug possession offenses, uh, which resulted in lower traffic stops and other things going on in Baltimore. And so uh, pay attention to those local elections because they do matter and they do impact police policing in your community. Um, the other thing I would say is to just remain vigilant. Um, I think it's easy to get discouraged because it just seems like day after day after day, there's a new video, there's a new incident. Um, stay vigilant. Um, just know that this is something that's going to take time. Uh, we've been working on this what seems like forever, <laughs> but uh, if you have the strength, just keep doing what you've been doing and, and make sure that you, you stay vigilant and active in, in your local community as well. All right. Well, we are out of time. We would like to thank our wonderful guest, Professor Tamika Moses, who is a criminal law specialist and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina and a new colleague here at NTCU School of Law. We are delighted to have her. And also a frequent guest who we always love having on the show, Professor Don Corbett. He is a constitutional law expert, among other things. Always a pleasure having you on. And we, of course, would like to thank you, our listening audience, for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we hope you will share it with your friends and family far and near. And if you have any comments about the show or if there's a topic you'd like for us to cover, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.